Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Dr. James Brink, Radiologist-in-Chief at the Massachusetts General Hospital, Chair of Radiology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Chief of Enterprise Radiology at the Mass General Brigham Health System, and the Juan M. Tavares Professor of Radiology at Harvard Medical School. After seven years as a faculty member at the Mallinckrodt Institute of Radiology at Washington University School of Medicine, he joined the faculty of Yale University for 16 years, serving as chair of the Department of Radiology for 10 of those years. In 2013, he returned to his residency and fellowship alma mater as Radiologist-in-Chief of the Massachusetts General Hospital. As past president of the American College of Radiology and the American Rankin Ray Society, current president of the International Society for Strategic Studies in Radiology, an honorary member of the European, Japanese, Chinese Societies of Radiology, Italian Societies of Radiology, and the American Association of Physicists in Medicine and the International Organization for Medical Physics, Dr. Brink has been an influential voice in the national and international radiology communities for many years. Before beginning my conversation with Dr. Brink, I want to invite you to join us for the 2023 Radiology Leadership Institute Summit, September 29th to October 1st, at a new venue, the Boston Seaport Hotel, located just minutes from Logan Airport on the historic waterfront. Although the venue has changed, this year's program will deliver the same compelling content and networking opportunities you've come to expect from the RLI Summit. Register at acr.org slash RLI Summit. Jim, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. So uh, let's start uh, with your earliest days. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised. I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, and raised uh, in Indiana. I lived there uh, through my formative years and uh, went to college and medical school there as well. Do you have brothers and sisters growing up? I did, and I do. I have four siblings. Uh, I'm the youngest of five, and we're spread out in age. My brother, uh, oldest brother, is 14 years older than me. There's twin girls 10 years older than me, and another sister who's five years older than me. I see. And your parents, so uh, what did uh, they do for a living? Uh, my father was an uh, aeronautical engineer who worked as a civilian um, employee of the Navy and directed their research labs at uh, the Naval Avionics Facility in Indianapolis. And uh, my mother was uh, did not work outside the home. Yeah, I'm sure it was very busy in the home. And, you know, the dynamics of being the youngest child sometimes, uh, you know, affect people a little bit differently. Talk a little bit about, you know, what it was like in your household growing up as the youngest and, you know, what were some of the perks and what were some of the challenges? With kids spread out so much in age, it was interesting because uh, there was sort of the older three and then the younger two. And also since the I uh, was the younger two were separated by five, four to five years in age. Um, I would say if there's my, my older siblings so that I got away with murder because my parents were too tired uh, having been through it all with so many others. So maybe that was the perk. 
Any challenges specifically? Uh, not particularly. Um, no, I, I, I would say that having, I always thought my circumstance had benefits and I didn't really see any challenges associated with them. Nice. And, um, you know, what about hobbies and, you know, activities that you did uh, growing up? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I very much like camping. I was a Boy Scout and uh, really loved all the outdoor activities that came with that. Enjoyed uh, travel with my family, um, just family vacations, and um, always enjoyed water sports if that was part of the vacation. So, Great. How far did you get in scouting? I went, uh, went all the way through to the, the Eagle Scout and had, had a lot of fun with that. That, that's very impressive. You know, sort of looking back on that whole journey, do you think that it had an influence on your becoming a leader or interest in leadership from those early days? Yeah, actually, I, I never really thought of it much, but I, it probably did. Uh, there's a lot of leadership opportunity through uh, through scouting, and I would say that's that's definitely true. Are there any events that pop up in your mind immediately when you think about your scouting years that just you know, or impactful and are a great memory? You know, uh, probably the one that I think of the most is just cooking, you know, how to, how to lead in, you know, a bunch of boys trying to cook uh, their dinners. I found that once I became sort of the, I think it was called the senior patrol leader, which was sort of the, the lead scout kind of thing. It all went better. It gave me an excuse just to cook my own meal <laughs> rather than trying to try to cook as a team. And I realized sort of counter to the so what the, you're supposed to be learning there, but I'd already been through the, the ranks of trying to cook as a group. And it, it wasn't a bad thing to have to just cook my own meals. Yeah. Cooking as a group on a campfire or, yeah. or camp stove as well. Challenging, no yeah. doubt. What was your first job outside the home? Oh, interesting question. And, um, you know, it's, it's fun, funny because it's a question I often ask trainee applicants. Uh, I think probably a lot of us do that, but I haven't, no one's asked me that question in maybe a long time. My first job, other than being a cutting grass and I did a lot of, you know, mowing of lawns and I did a little bit of delivering of papers. But the first job other than those two was working in a dish room in a hotel restaurant. I worked in the dish room and did did some busboy work as part of that, bussing tables and washing dishes. And and room service was a, a perk, meaning we, if we ever got asked to go do deliver room service, that was like, get me out of the kitchen. And that was always a pleasure. Wow. And how did you find yourself doing that particular job? I was only 15. And uh, some of the older neighbor kids uh, asked me if I, I think they were looking for help at this this particular place. So they helped me get the job. And it was something that you wanted to do was to um, work outside the home to earn money or something that was expected in your family? Mostly, mostly to, uh, to earn money. I wasn't thrilled with the job, but nonetheless, the only, I, I do have some vivid memories of some of the room service trips. Those were a little bit more interesting. But yeah, I, I did that for one summer. Any of those room service trips you care to share? <laughs> well, well there were one that was the most memorable was a couple that come to that are very memorable. One was kind of poignant, which was that there was an elderly woman who lived in the hotel. It was well known that if you were delivered room service to her, you also sat and, and talked with her while she ate her, her breakfast. And it was the bosses expected that. And, you know, knew you were meant to not just to deliver the food, but also to provide company, which was kind of sad, you know, uh, in a way. But I remember that. I also remember delivering room service to a room in which they ordered 12 orange juices or something, and you had to bring a glass of water for every person you were serving. And so I trying to trying to carry 24 glasses of 
liquid without them sloshing all over the place. And we had to carry it up on our shoulder, kind of thing like a waiter in the movies. Uh, That was the expectation. You weren't supposed to push a cart around. It was hard. By the time I got there, all the the orange juice had sloshed into the milk and into the water, and I had to start all over. And it took me, yeah, it was just a huge mess. What a challenge. Looking back on your childhood, are there any moments that strike you that influence you today, continue to influence you in your approach to leadership? Oh, gosh. You know, I, um, I would say that emotional intelligence is such an important aspect of leadership. And I felt that my mother in particular had terrific emotional intelligence. And, I, and she was a wonderful people person. I used to tell my parents that my father's attributes I inherited as a analytical scientist type person were really important earlier in my career. But as I got older and farther along in my career, the skills I learned from my mother, who uh, didn't have formal education after high school, became even more important because I felt like I really learned the soft skills of interacting with people and working with people through her. And I would tell her that uh, her contributions to my career actually became more and more important over time. My father never took it personally. That's that's good. That, that's a that's a fantastic uh, recollection. Did did you ever have an active conversation with your mother to ask her about her approaches to working with people, or was it mostly just observing how she interacted? Just observations, and um, she had terrific insight into people, and but certainly just by uh, under her tutelage, so to speak. Yeah. Did you take on any leadership positions while in high school? I was on the student council. And interestingly, I went to a a large high school. We had about 4,000 kids for three grades. And I was the cultural committee chairman for the student council. So, (laughs) Which meant what? All sorts of different things. I mean, ranging from, I I would just put on on events, uh, ranging from film festival where a homemade movie film festival which in those days was really challenging without with, with, since it was all non-digital film splicing and so forth to get kids to make a movie and try and make it presentable and was really challenging yeah sounds fun sounds fun i assume there was budget available or uh, did you have to do all of this stuff without a budget I don't recall there being a budget, but I think if I needed help with things, the school would help provide in-kind support, meaning, but no, there wasn't a, I don't recall there actually being a real budget set aside for it. And after high school, did you go straight to college? I did. And where did you go? I went to uh, Purdue University in Indiana. And what did you study there? I studied electrical engineering. What led you to pursue electrical engineering? I come from a long line of engineers and was always really intrigued by engineering, particularly electrical engineering. As a kid, I I enjoyed tinkering with electronics. In high school, you know, you may recall the Heath kit. Uh, I don't think that exists anymore. That company that had kits you can make your own stereo or TV or what have you. I enjoyed making my own my stereo that I used with that. And I think even in eighth grade, my science project was making a amplifier I found in a library book that even used vacuum tubes, which were hard to still find at that point, but it had, I think, a three three vacuum tubes. It was more of a science fair project than anything. But, but yeah, no, I, I very much thought I would always be an engineer and envisioned my life as an engineer. My dad was an engineer, my brother, and so forth and so on. So when did you make that decision pivot to go into medicine? Halfway through, I'm, well, I, I did the engineering in three years, and so it was probably after the second year. And heading into that third year, my um, my brother, my oldest brother, who had was an engineer turned lawyer, basically said, "Jim, the family needs a doctor." <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay. Frankly, 
I was I was 19, 20 years old, and I seemed like I was way too young to start my adult life as an engineer. And I thought, well, that'll kill 10 years. And I'll go to med school. Oh, <laughs> I see. And so, so uh, what was it, do you think, that your brother was thinking when he said the family needed a doctor? Or did he really imply, I think you should be a doctor because this is the right well, both really, both. I think, yeah, the both. I, I, I'm not sure how serious he was about the family needs the doctor part. I do remember him saying that, but it may have been more just. Uh, he, my father, or excuse me, my brother was very much. A, I looked up to him quite a lot in a, a, a very strong mentorship capacity, and he was again 14 years older than me, so um, it just encouraged me to look beyond engineering as he had and enjoyed the fact that he was drawing on engineering skills and background, but then pivoting to a different profession and kind of bringing engineering into that with them with into that profession. And in your mind at that point, having immersed yourself in, you know, engineering as a discipline and its ethos, was there an aspect of medical practice that you saw yourself moving into? I can't recall how early it was that I really imagined that radiology might be the where I would end up. I can't recall if it was actually before I even left undergrad, the undergrad campus. But it was very early on that I thought if I ended up in going into medicine that I would end up in a highly technical field such as radiology um, because of my interest. And it was either before I left undergrad or right when I, you know, very shortly after I got to med school, somewhere in that, right in that transition. But I knew pretty early on that's kind of where I wanted to go. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty neat. A lot of young Students just entering medical school really don't have any idea what radiology is. Did you know somebody who was a radiologist or have some particular exposure? I did not, actually. When I got to Indiana University, which is where I went to medical school, there was a lab that I got affiliated with very early on, like right out of the gate, which was mostly an ultrasound research lab, uh, ultrasound technology research, a lot of engineers. And it was called ICFAR, Indianapolis Center for Advanced Research, ICFAR. And uh, I don't think they exist anymore either. And they were they were, they were closely tied to the radiology department, and that's why I just have that those memories are a bit vague as to when that when I first got that idea. But yeah, your affinity to joining up with ICFAR and getting involved in research from an early stage was that something that uh, how did that evolve? You know, I can't even remember exactly how I came to know of them or how it ever how it came to pass that I found them and uh, may someone may have told me and I reached out. I don't I don't really recall. I really enjoyed the relationship there. I I worked through the first couple of years of med school I and the summer in between of the first and second year and also during the school year they I was working on projects. They provided a small stipend for me and it was really a valuable experience and I I gained some good both, you know, personal development uh, opportunities as well as getting some papers published and so forth were, were, were very helpful. Did, did you find that research was a passion of yours? It was. I enjoyed it. And I had particularly, I, I liked the intersection of engineering and medicine. And that, that's definitely what was going on there, the developing new technologies and uh, testing and applying them. Of course, this is decades ago. So the technologies now are fairly um, antiquated if, if we were to go back and really explore what we were working on. But it was still, at the time, it was, it was a cutting edge. Yeah, that's cool. You were were you actually uh, tasked with building things and implementing designs, or were you engaged in the ideation of the projects? 
No, there were more engineers who worked there full time that that's what they did. And I was more on the translation side of leveraging a building blocks to build sort of imaging, you know, imaging test imaging systems, particularly the one particular the one I was focused on was a high frequency uh, ultrasound system for one project in particular was looking at at skin with ultrasound, looking at uh, seeing if there was uh, applications for high frequency ultrasound imaging of skin and for burn, burn staging, burn assessment and so forth. Excellent. And so you mentioned you were at Indiana University for medical school. Did you pursue any extracurricular activities as part of medical school beyond your work with ICFAR? Did you take on any leadership roles within medical school? No. Yeah. So yeah, the one activity that um, I did get involved with was we had a vigorous, uh, what was called an extern program. I'm not sure how common that is in different states, but Indiana has a, I'm not sure if they still do or not, but at the time medical students could work as externs in emergency rooms and in inpatient units. And I did quite a lot of that. Typical shift in the emergency room might be staffed by one emergency medicine physician, one emergency medicine resident or intern, and then three or four medical student externs. And we gained quite a lot of experience suturing and evaluating patients. And and then after a certain period of time, you would start covering the inpatient floors as well. And so I do have some very vivid memories of some of the <laughs> some of those years and some of those experiences because those were really learning le- le- learning fast as a medical student. It seems like a fair bit of responsibility for medical students to be offered. I'm not sure that in today's environment, medical students have quite that opportunity. No, I would think, think probably not. But I, I definitely was re- responding to some really remarkable circumstances just just me <laughs> that was please share share some you know one or two of those experiences that yeah i remember one 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 evening in particular late at night being called to a floor of a patient who was suffering from a, a gi bleed you know as you know these are pretty much exsanguinating from both ends and it was just you know just a huge mess and horrible situation and all i knew how to do was put ivs in at that point in time. So I just started putting IVs in and of course calling for help. And, and by the time people, the, the surgeon came in from home and people mustered and so forth, I managed to have a bunch of IVs in. And I thought I'd, that, you know, I felt t- terribly inadequate because that's all I could do. And they were so happy that I had done that and, you know, and, and the patient did live. So even if all you can do is start IVs, sometimes that's certainly better than nothing. And that was a good outcome. Excellent. So you stayed in Indianapolis for your internship, but ultimately left the state for your residency. Uh, Tell us about where you went and what was the basis for your radiology training preference. Yeah, thank you. So while I was working at ICFAR, one of the projects we worked on had to do with echocardiography, and it was really trying to look at the backscattered waveform from an echocardiogram in ischemic versus normal myocardium as uh, using an animal model. It was in a, in a dog model. And the cardiologist who was uh, really leading the project was a, a gentleman named Ned Wayman, who went on to become the chief of echocardiography at uh, Mass General. I asked him if I might be able to come spend a, a summer working on the same project. And since we were into the data analysis stage of that project, it really meant you know having computing resources to do the project. And in those days, Computing resources were 
few and far between and difficult to come by with big platters of memory, as you, you, you may recall. And so um, he was eager to have me come to Mass General to do the data analysis. And so I did come where I'm sitting at the moment to, uh, to do that project. It gave me an opportunity to really experience life at MGH and life in Boston, and I really liked it. I had never really been out of Indiana much other than for the annual family vacation somewhere. And so I think our, our world is much smaller these days. People travel around a lot more than they did back then, and at least I didn't. And so coming to Boston was a real opportunity for me and ultimately led to my applying for the residency. This is before the match. And so the two places that I was very interested in were Stanford, where I know you spent some time, and Mass General. I had opportunities at both, and I ended up choosing uh, MGH for the residency, largely because of having been been there already for the that summer experience. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. And while you were a resident at MGH, did you continue pursuing the research and continue with the projects, or? Did you uh, mostly pivot into the task of focusing on learning clinical radiology? I remember presenting one of those projects. I can't remember which one at the RSNA that first year, when in my first year of residency. I can't remember which one it was, but it might have been the... Anyway, and then um, I got embedded into the a couple of years of just focusing on learning radiology. So I didn't do research probably for the first couple of years and then got involved with the abdominal division here at MGH under Joe Ferrucci and Peter Mueller and started doing research again in the latter part of my residency in that division. And what was it about Peter Mueller and Joe Ferrucci's division that, you know, attracted you to abdominal imaging? You know, I think there a couple things. One is I really liked um, the diversity of abdominal imaging, of being able to focus on multiple organs, multiple, a wide range of disease processes among multiple organs and organ systems. And they had a very charismatic group under Joe and Peter that sort of inspired people to want to come work with them. And they had quite a cadre of both national and international visitors. I'm looking at a picture I have on my my bookcase still from those years in which many of the world leaders of radiology today were at a table that I'm looking at over there in this picture of all of us in the in the late 80s. And Joe Frucci is is hosting a dinner in this, this picture with all of us. And, and I, I some of these are lifelong friends that, I, that went on to become leaders in different domains. Sounds like a special time and a special group. Did you have an inkling as you were working with these folks that they would all sort of have illustrious careers ahead of them? You know, it's awfully hard to look to look forward, isn't it? You know, you don't. You know, it's easy to look back and go, "Gee, I I remember when." But no, I I wasn't terribly clairvoyant in that respect, even for my own career. I wasn't sure where I was heading. So after completing a fellowship in abdominal imaging with doctors Ferrucci and Mueller. You began your illustrious academic career not at MGH, but in St. Louis at Washington University. Um, what attracted you to Malacrot? It's interesting. I, I actually had an opportunity to stay at MGH. Dr. Thrall offered me a position, but we had were kind of missing our family in the Midwest and wanted to. We're just starting to have kids and wanted to be closer to our family. So that was a big draw to go back to the Midwest. St. Louis, being just four hours from Indiana by car, was was very appealing. Mellencrot had a very strong reputation, still does, and a really terrific institution. And I felt very fortunate to be offered a position there and, and jumped at it. Yeah, excellent. So you were there, Mellencrot, for seven years. Take us through those seven years. What were your primary goals upon entering academic practice? And how did you allocate your effort during those years as a junior faculty? 
Interestingly, before I left Mass General, I had received an RSNA award. I forget if it's a resident award, or I forget the different categorizations of them now, or a research award, research fellowship, I guess is what it, what it was called. And it was focused on gallstone lithotripsy, which of course is, became a very a defunct procedure. But at the time, there was a lot of interest in gallstone lithotripsy. Of course, this was supplanted by laparoscopic surgery, which kind of bumped it right out of the marketplace. But when I arrived in St. Louis in 1990, I was finishing my RSNA fellowship work and analyzing data, publishing papers to finish that body of work, that data I'd collected at Mass General. And then realizing that all the stuff I'd been working on was completely defunct, the question was, what? how do I pivot? And I give big credit to Bruce McLennan and Jay Hyken in particular, Dennis Balf, Sherry Teefee, Bill Middleton, Carrie Siegel, maybe forgetting others, but they're just a terrific bunch of people at Mallinckrodt who really helped. And particularly Jay, who was very focused in CT and CT technology, Jay Hyken, said, gee, you know, something called helical, I guess spiral CT at the time, it was called spiral at the, at the beginning. Spiral CT is just coming on the, you know, coming to four. Do you want to get involved in that? And I said, sure, that sounds interesting. It's got some overlap with engineering and so forth. And so it was right about that, about the time I arrived in St. Louis, or maybe a year after, and I pivoted towards CT technology and investigation. Did you take on any administrative roles during those early junior years? No, yeah, you know, in the very beginning, I mean, it's one of the earliest jobs that nobody wants is making the schedule for the division. And, and so I think from the day I landed, I started making the schedule for the abdominal division and used, I, I just used an Excel sheet, basically, <laughs> which at that time was somewhat novel to be using and sharing it online. That was the other thing. Even just sharing a document online at the time was considered way out there and having people edit the document and pass it around and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, that, that was my first administrative function. And sadly, once you start making a schedule out, it's awfully hard to get rid of it, isn't it? So I made that schedule out for all seven years and then some some years at Yale as well. I'm sure... That effort was hugely appreciated by your colleagues. <laughs> now, you and I first met during your early years at Mallinckrodt when we shared an affinity for investigating the, as you described, the then new technology of spiral CT and presented our results at the Society of Computed Body Tomography and Magnetic Resonance. And I have fond recollections of those days. Do you have any particularly memorable recollections of that time and your engagement with the SCBTMR? I do, yeah. The SCBTMR was was really a great forum. And, and you're right, you and I both go way back to that those days and both, I think, benefited a lot from the collaborative environment that was the opportunity to share our work and to learn from each other and to interact with our senior members of the society who were sort of helped guide us and shape us. And it was just really terrific. I was just recounting for someone recently, just a couple of days ago, about some experiences from those years that I had a, I had a young faculty member in here talking, talking to me about doing projects with mini swine. And I did a big project with trying to detect pulmonary emboli with CT in a mini swine model. And boy, that was a real challenge, that project. And so that when I think about those years, the, the one that I, it still makes me shudder because it was such a challenging project was, was that one. I remember you presenting that work. And, you know, I wonder, was your affinity to take on animal models, which is not something that many radiologists will, will, will pursue, was that rooted in the work you did with ICFAR and some of the animal experiments you did there? 
I think so. And yeah, I did mini, I did mini swine as well for the burn project that was talking about the skin, skin, high ultrasound, high, high frequency ultrasound of burns when that was a mini swine project too. So I had that experience, but I think one of the challenges with animal research is it's the good and the bad of it is it, you can, there's, there's no stone to leave unturned, right? You're sacrificing an animal so you can, you know, so we did a full set of imaging pre emboli, meaning we did the full spiral CT angiogram, both lungs. We did the full conventional angiogram pre, then we gave the emboli, then we did the full conventional angiogram post, and then the full CT angiogram post, and then we sacrificed the animal, and then did the ex vivo angiogram, and then sliced the lungs, and oh, it's just a huge amount of work. <laughs> uh, and then trying to match up all the emboli among all those data sets, and trying to, oh, it was just really, and especially without any, without a whole lot of digital help. You know, I mean, the, the, the opportunity to use digital imaging was pretty rudimentary at the, still at that point in time. What, what a task. And then, of course, there's always the concern that even though you can do the imaging in an animal model, to what extent does it equate to the human condition in sick patients? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was enormous amount of work. <laughs> so. yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I respect the effort and the results. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like your years at Mallinckrodt were, were largely centered on research and scheduling <laughs> and, and, you know, essentially, you know, building your early academic career. And so then you left after seven years and you moved to Yale, New Haven, Connecticut. And what led to that move? So my division chief, Bruce McLennan at Mallinckrodt became the chair at Yale and recruited me to join him as vice chair for clinical operations. That's a big pivot based on your description of your years at Mallinckrodt, where the administrative responsibility was pretty well scoped. What was it that you foresaw for yourself at that moment in time that led you to say, you know, I'm ready to maybe take a back seat with some of this academic work and focus on more administrative activity? I recall being somewhat interested in widening, widening my shutters a little bit. I felt that I I could see radiology and abdominal imaging and the abdominal division and enjoyed that. But it was, it seemed my personality wanted to open the, wanted to open the shutters more. And I remember feeling like I was, had a, had a fairly constrained view of the world and kind of also realizing maybe it was the, that mini swine project as well, that being so focused on one thing as that project required left me hungry for a broader, less deep opportunity. And so Maybe the 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 what I enjoy about administration is that you get you get to dabble in lots of different things. You live vicariously through a lot of other people's work, and as long as you're a champion of that work and can help support them, then you get the benefits of also learning more about their opportunities and their their struggles. And at, at a very basic level, it's about the depth and breadth of of what it is that's within your purview. And at the time that you made that move from the Midwest back to the East Coast and into New England, tell us a little bit about your family life at that time. You had kids. Yeah, thank you. I'm trying to remember, <laughs> one, one, my oldest child was born in Boston. The other, the three younger, he was a boy. The three girls were born in St. Louis, and so we had all four when we moved to Connecticut. And they were, I think, you know, two, four, six, and eight at best. Maybe not even that old. Yeah, so it's a reasonably big group to move across the country. Were there any challenges to your family in pursuing that move? 
they weren't quite old enough to really be traumatized by a move like that. I mean, they might might have been more like one, three, five, and seven, something like that. Very small, but even still, they really missed their friends in St. Louis. And I remember that first summer when they I, I went out a couple months before they did, and would kind of commute back and forth. That first summer, there was a a radiology meeting that the late Bernie Birnbaum used to, he, he was fond of sponsoring meetings. He had a meeting in the Grand Tetons uh, National Park and we decided to take the family there. And I think my wife, Holly, decided just to drive all the kids there from Connecticut, just to something to do. So, we, you know, I flew out and met them there, but they drove from Connecticut to the Grand Tetons and stopped along the way, visiting visiting people and seeing parks and working their way across the country. And then, then I drove back with them. But it was a, for them, it was a multi, uh, maybe like a two month trip. For me, it was a, a week uh, or two, but yeah. That's fun. And, and Holly was fully on board with the move and mm-hmm. supportive of your career in those days. And Yeah, I think that we, we looked forward to kind of coming back to the East Coast. New England has uh, such a wide range of things to do, ranging from ocean to lake to mountains and city. A lot of, lot of variety in, the, in New England. So yeah, we enjoy yeah. kind of coming back. That, that's nice. And, you know, I can't help but just sort of reflect on the description of traveling to one of Bernie's meetings. Early mm-hmm. on, we packed our five kids into a van and drove up to Banff for one of Bernie's meetings. Mm-hmm. So and there was something about him and his meetings, I guess, that led people to want to drive. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Let's get back to your response responsibilities as vice chair for clinical affairs. You mentioned about your interest in, you know, broadening your exposure. Talk to us a little bit about what your specific responsibilities were within that role. It was overseeing the the clinical department, including all the Yale sections and section chiefs and working with the technical supervisors and really it was a really broad scope. It was a real learning curve for me. I had quite a lot to learn on the job, on the job training, I guess. Bruce gave me quite a lot of latitude in the job, so real open sort of canvas on which to try and paint and run into, you know, there, there's definitely things that one, run, when one runs into when trying to paint on a fresh canvas in an existing opportunity like that. So it was interesting times, but certainly formative times. Yeah, no doubt. I and mean, coming into a new institution with probably a lot of longstanding division chiefs and having not yourself specifically served in the role of division chief, what steps did you take to help to build trust and credibility with these individuals that you were tasked to lead? I'd say probably the most, again, kind of maybe drawing back on my learning skills learned from my mother was mostly about just building relationships with them and, and also being sort of sharing the lived experiences of, of their lives. And so I remember one one notable experience was working with the interventional radiologist that I, I had trained in some intervention with Peter Mueller, but I really didn't do interventional radiology at Mallinckrodt since I didn't I only did non-vascular and I, I let that that kind of go by the wayside. I still had some understanding of what it what life was like for an interventional radiologist, but not nearly to the degree of being one. And so during some tough staffing challenges, I remember going to a team huddle every day for a couple of years with the interventional radiologist just to hear what their, their challenges were that day and see if I could make a difference to try and help. That's the kind of strategy I guess I would I embraced was embedding in the, with the, trying to share the lived experience of the people that you're trying to help. Yeah, excellent point. Uh, as you described it, it sounds like the role wasn't 
particularly prescribed to you, you mentioned that Bruce gave you a fairly blank canvas. And so it sounds like you were able to establish your own strategic priorities and, and execute them. Yeah, it, it, I would say there was also a tumultuous time. I think Yale was kind of going through some some challenges of its own at the time. And so um, I think it was as much navigating some of the some of the, the the challenges, probably the biggest challenge related to creation of at that point in time a twenty four seven emergency radiology service. This was about nineteen ninety seven. Yale was pretty far ahead of its time in creating a twenty four seven program, and having emergency radiologists provide emergency radiology care after hours or even during normal working hours was a bit novel at the time. And whereas more typical model would be to defer interpretation of such exams until daytime hours. We had adopted a program of really having emergency radiologists interpret those studies in real time, uh, also with some quality control overchecks the next day and so forth. And so I remember coming in every you know many mornings, and the first stop was always the emergency room to to talk with the overnight radiologist, how to go, look at the cases that at least were germane to, to body imaging, abdominal imaging. And that was a somewhat tumultuous time, but also an opportunity to build something and that, that ultimately has become sort of a standard now. But back then it was quite, quite novel and somewhat controversial. What was the uh, impetus for creating this service? Did it come from within radiology or was it something that came from the institution? I think it came from within radiology primarily. I give big credit to Howie Foreman at Yale, who's still at Yale, uh, who I think together with others uh, felt that this was a way to help really kind of get past some of the other challenges we had. Of course, there's a downside to the old way of doing it, which is that with residents only providing interpretations overnight, sometimes um, there's discrepancies in the morning, there's challenges with that approach. And our emergency emergency medicine program at Yale was very desirous of seeing attending level reads at a pretty early point in time. And being able to provide timely final interpretations was important to Yale. And so we really kind of, for a variety of reasons, wanted to step up and meet that challenge. And what was the nature of the tumult through this? Well, I think that, again, you have to rewind the clock now for almost 25, 30 years. Back at that point in time, this was a really novel concept, that the idea that if you were a subspecialized radiologist in an academic setting that you wouldn't necessarily be reading the trauma scans, that emergency radiologists would be reading trauma scans. That was, that was, and it was presumed previously that the best interpretation of a trauma scan would be to farm it out and split it up into different pieces and have neuro read the, the neuro part and chest read the chest part and so forth. And having it all read by emergency radiologist was, was novel. And so how did you help everybody to manage through this change? Very carefully. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding because it had so many different facets to it that I'm not sure we'll, I can answer it so easily other than to say that each domain, each subspecialty had its own issues with it. And, and it, was, it was challenging to navigate, unquestionably. We did provide a, a overread process so that to try and ensure to make sure that, that the subspecialty divisions would be, uh, or sections would be allowed to to review those images uh, the next day. And if there was concerns, they could highlight them, but at least the final read had been prepared initially. So some of the some of the challenges became with that overread process, but meaning that I remember we published a paper on the the frequency with which a significant overread, a significant finding was was found or changed or what have you with the overread process and showed that it was certainly at a, a very low level and what we considered acceptable. But there was some some tension over the 
the idea that these were emergency radiologists and not not otherwise at that point. And I guess what I'm trying to say is emergency radiology really wasn't accepted, at least in our domain, as a unique subspecialty. And I'd have to go back and look and see when this American Society of Emergency Radiology was even formed. I'm not even sure I know how that relates to the story I'm telling, but it was certainly an evolution. Yeah. Well, you were certainly at the vanguard of that change that time at Yale. As you look back on your five-year tenure as vice chair for clinical affairs, what are you most proud of? Is it the transition to an ED service? Yeah, I would say so. I, I think so. That was really the, that was, it certainly consumed a lot of time and attention. I, I, if I, if there's one downside, I do feel like at times some of the other parts of the department sort of would raise their hand and go, hey, what about us kind of thing? Because we really did end up consuming quite a lot of time and energy with it. But uh, we were really, really front runners when it comes to, to, to doing that. Now it's, you know, it's considered completely commonplace, Yeah. if not expected. Now, after five years, you were promoted initially to the role of interim chair and then chair of Yale Radiology, a position that you held in aggregate for 10 years. What were some of the biggest surprises or challenges that you faced in transitioning from vice chair of clinical affairs to chair of the department? You know, there, it's probably the, the most obvious and sort of goes without saying is that if you're the, if you're the chair, you're the the buck, the buck has to stop somewhere and you're, you're it. If you're a vice chair, though, there's always someone above you <laughs> that you could defer to. And that's probably the, and I, I realize that's a very obvious point, but it's, you, you definitely notice that when you make that transition. Yeah. And, and, and do you recall any early issues that you dealt with as chair where this really came home to you, where you realize that, you know, I have to make a decision where, Previously, I would have preferred to have handed this one off. Yes. Well, Yale, Yale went through a pretty tumultuous time in the very beginning of my tenure because some of the angst that was experienced through the emergency radiology story I told you a moment ago ended up actually playing out in an employment grievance that I had to deal with. And so in 20, 2004, this was a very difficult year. I think I took over as interim chair in 2003 and in the summer of 2004, an employment grievance was aired in the court system. It went on for, it was an eight-week eight week experience, Monday through Friday, eight to five. And it was not even in the same town. <laughs> it was in Waterbury, Connecticut, which is, I forget exactly the distance. It's at least an hour drive to New Haven. So that was a tough time because I had to go to Waterbury every day and then go to Yale in the evening and try and run the department in the evening after having done that during the day. Well, that, that sounds very, very difficult. How did you prepare yourself to deal with that extraordinary circumstance? I'm not sure I could, I, I, I did prepare myself uh, I, other than I, I learned a lot through the process. Some, many of the lessons I learned at that time continue with me today. These were very valuable experiences. What I find is there aren't that many people, even among our own legal among the lawyers that we work with who have actually been in an employment grievance of that magnitude and with that kind of experience, uh, with real court experience and so forth. So you know, everything from the evidentiary processes that are used, jury selection, really just learned a huge amount from you know, going through that. As they say, you know, some of the most difficult experiences you have are the most educational ones, and that certainly was a summer of high education. <laughs> 
And so those learning points, how have you subsequently been able to apply them? You know, so they come up uh, not uncommonly in just some of the dealings with managing a large workforce. I would say, you know, watching, watching the what's admissible as evidence and how you how how evidence is generated in an employment agreement or an employment dispute, I should say, is important. So much of the documentation that I followed, the principles for documentation and so forth, are really informed by that summer, 2004. And in all your years of leadership since then, have you ever been called upon to engage in as formalized a legalistic HR issue or mostly just being prepared just in case it comes up? (laughs) I've not been in a circumstance like that one of that magnitude, no, meaning I've never had to go back to court. And again, I was there representing Yale. I wasn't there representing myself. I was basically there to help advise the the legal team about the the circumstances. So yeah, it, it, it was definitely an educational experience and one that is of a magnitude that I've not experienced since. Yeah. But, but what advice then, you know, based upon this experience and then your subsequent experience and, as you put it, managing a large workforce, how do you advise folks that are just beginning their time as chair to address challenging human resource issues? And what, what best practices would you suggest? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, first, I've actually made the point in various venues that institutions probably would do well to spend more time working with chairs to help help them understand best practices for HR. And I think most organizations probably underinvest in in onboarding chairs and helping them adapt and, and get familiar with best practices. I would say that, again, the, the principles of emotional intelligence are so critical. That's really empathy respect and selflessness. Being empathetic with the people that we are managing is the first principle. And usually when someone's in your office with a problem, being empathetic to what it means for them to be in your office with that problem is is really important and establishing a, a good, respectful relationship with them and be their advocate as much as you possibly can is, is really critical. And that third principle of selflessness is germane to kind of all of the activities we pursue, meaning that if it's it's not about us as the leaders, it's about the promoting the, the people we serve. And and that's both in good times and in bad. So if, if someone's struggling in, and they're in your office because of, of challenges they're having, it's important to still be remember that selflessness that it's about really trying to help them and so forth. Those are probably the most critical principles, I think. And then being able to document well conversations, not just for your own re- recollection, but for subsequent follow-ups conversations with individuals at a later date, or even with your superiors, if it needs, if there, if things need to be recounted for others, it can be quite helpful. What is your approach to pursuing that documentation? I'm a big believer in in my dictaphone, <laughs> so I have a uh, handheld dictaphone that I. I uh, keep in my briefcase kind of all the time. And it's helpful for knocking out letters, of course, that need to get written or other notes. But also if there's a conversation that I just need to remember, I know I'm going to need to to remember what transpired. I just dictate a note about the conversation. Do you rely on a human transcriptionist for what you dictate or are you uh, going with voice recognition now? 
So interestingly, I'm, I'm a bit old school. I'm blessed to have a wonderful assistant, uh, Doreen McNally, who's already typed one for me this morning. We've tried voice recognition, but nothing beats Doreen right now. She also helps format things and clean things up. And so I'm very fortunate to have her. But I, I know that I'm probably going to be a dinosaur pretty soon in that respect. But I did move from having a physical cassette tape to I have an electronic file so I can send her the voice files from from anywhere, which is, you know, obviously the modern era. That I know. <laughs> it took me a while to get. It took me a while to get rid of those cassette tapes, though. Yes. It's often said that it takes five years or so for a department chair to fully organize their department to feel that they are leading their department and not that of their predecessors. When would you say that you reached that point at Yale? Well, that's a great question, Jeff. I'm not sure. That's a tough one because it depends on what domain we're talking about. You know, I think that uh, the challenges that stemmed from the difficulties with getting that emergency radiology division off the ground and, and some of the downstream effects probably weren't fully resolved until maybe 2007, so about 10 years, because I started at Yale in 1997. But other things transitioned much more quickly, and I would say within a matter of, of months, is it fair to say that by the time you left, having served as chair or interim chair for 10 years, that the department really felt at that point like it was, it was yours? Yes, yes. I do feel that by that point in time that I had made, made a, an impact on the department. And I, I periodically hear from some of my former faculty members at Yale that as recently as uh, just a week ago, which are very nice, nice, nice emails to get. And so at that moment in time, when you left Yale, what was it that led to that decision? Uh, having trained at MGH, and it was really seeing that Jim Thrall was retiring as the chair here. I had watched with interest some of the, the remarkable things that Jim had created at MGH in the practice building, the research infrastructure, the you know, he had done just a terrific job of building this department in the 2000s. And I mean, he, he was chair for quite a long time, but I was paying attention a lot during the 2000s, I guess, as put it bluntly. And when he decided to retire, I thought, wow, it might be interesting to go back since I had trained here and, and got my, my origins here. So that was appealing to me. Heading into your second run as department chair, what did you do differently when compared to starting as a new chair at Yale? Well, it was a very different circumstance. I, I took over at Yale during a very tumultuous time at Yale, became interim chair rather precipitously. And coming into MGH, I was coming into a very different type of, of a circumstance where the department was in great shape. Jim had done a great job. He was being a, he was a terrific both mentor to many people here uh, and also did a terrific job of really helping the department transition to having a new leader. And now, I, looking back at that, I give him huge credit for that. He worked really hard, I think, to, to set things up for success. Someone asked me recently how many faculty left when I came. I don't think anybody left. I think, I think I can't recall anyone who left, at least at that transition, because I was coming in the door. I mean, of course, there's always attrition and people leave for different reasons, but I can't identify anyone who really who did so because of that transition. And I give him tons of credit for that. I remember he had a very strong leadership team that I basically adopted. I didn't make any changes when I walked in the door. And the onboarding for me was just tremendous. He had a business development team really sort of be the 
the the coordinators of producing materials for me to help me orient me to the department. It's a very large, complicated department, and I got quite a lot of written material from vice chairs and others writing, just writing their summaries of. Um, the, the one in particular that I remember most vividly is from Giles Boland, who's now president of the, the Brigham and Women's Physicians Organization. He wrote, he's quite a good writer, Giles. <laughs> he wrote me huge documents just describing his portfolios of his areas of responsibility were enormously helpful. Just having those documents to read through and understand kind of the history and the background was really, really helpful. It's fantastic. Fantastic to hear how Jim Thrall and Giles helped it. You know, both of them have been guests on the podcast and shared their leadership experiences and expertise. And, you know, particularly uh, for Jim Thrall as your predecessor, you know, all of your recollections of his, you know, excellent effectiveness during the 90s and 2000s is, is quite interesting to hear. And it's, it's, it's not a surprise at all to hear your description of how he made sure that the transition was a smooth one and, and put so much effort into it. That's really gratifying to hear. Do you think that there is a playbook for new academic department chairs, or is every place sufficiently different that new chairs need to write their own playbook on the fly? Well, that's a good question. I think a lot of things are a priori. You know, in other words, the environments are so different in departments as you kind of walk in the door that I think that it's kind of hard to say that there's a playbook to follow other than at a very high level, which is about being slow to slow to make change. I Meaning I think that when you walk in the door, you want to you want to do be on a listening tour and to really get a good feel for the the problems, the landscape, the the personalities, the what the institution wants, what the the faculty want what the referring physicians want, and so forth. So, but I think that's a pretty well understood concept. Yeah. Now you've been chair of radiology at MGH for ten years. Con- mm-hmm. Congratulations on reaching that milestone in two major academic departments. L- looking back over the same length of time leading each department, what similarities and what differences do you see in, in leading the two departments? I would say probably the biggest, uh, first, I, I when I came to MGH, I, I thought it would have been a very difficult place to come in and be a department chair if you hadn't done it before. It, it's because it's a very large uh, department with a lot of nuances to it that are unique. So for example, Jim had built a, a radiology consulting group, a business arm within the department that did consulting and a very strong 3D program is something I, I know you're very familiar with, Jeff, and the Institute for Technology Assessment under Scott Gazelle and the Center for Systems Biology, which is a thematic center that Ralph Eisleder runs, and then the Martino Center, which is Bruce Rosen's center with at least 250 employees and two huge, huge things going on in this department. And so having not been a department chair before, I think would have been really challenging. Probably the thing I was least prepared for was you know, helping helping to support the fairly large number of physician scientists in the department. I did not come with that. That was one thing I was I didn't have as much experience with. We didn't have near the the breadth of physician scientists with peer reviewed funding at, in my last position that I, I I encountered at MGH. And I give big credit to Tom Brady and Scott Gazelle for helping me sort of navigate those waters and get get my feet on the ground. What did you find was particular or unique about supporting physician scientists as opposed to non-physician scientists? You know, I think finding the first is sort of, sort of making making decisions a little bit about, you know, 
do we continue to support them at the if they're fully peer fully supported with peer reviewed funding? Are they are they on the physician comp plan? Even if they may not do any clinical work, should they be part of the physician comp plan? How do we how do you if everyone if all the physicians are getting an academic day, does that mean that the physician scientists are just needing to generate funding for 80% of their salary and so forth. So there's a lot of issues that need to be at least thought through. And not to say that we get them all right, but we, we continue to sort of think through those issues and modify them. But And then what are the requirements? For, so for example, even K awards, I remember hearing from some of the more senior chairs around the country how they were not supportive of K awards because the K awards didn't pay enough or what have you and required too much time. And and how we would navigate those. And those are just a few of the examples of some of the many things that come up in, in helping to support physician scientists. I'm a big believer in supporting them because this is the future of our specialty and it's really about having the resources to be able to support them. Again, I give Jim big credit for building a cadre of mechanisms with which to use to support those physician scientists. And so as you wrestled with some of these issues, where did you look to have inputs to help in your decision-making process? I looked at the people in the department who've been living here mostly because, again, I sort of saw MGH as really, you know, at the top of its game. And when you come in as a department chair and with a tremendous leader who's just retiring because it's time to retire, you know? (laughs) It's not like, I mean, this is a... You're, you're walking into a palace that doesn't, I, I remember thinking, I, you know, just don't mess this up, you know? I mean, that's a very different mindset than walking into a place where, you know, there's not mentioning, not thinking of any institution specifically with this comment, but, you know, if it's a fixer-upper, all you can do is make it better. And when I walked in here, I thought, all I can do is make it worse. So so that was, that was I, I was very gingerly, I approached these issues gingerly, but particularly just gathering input from the people that, have been in living it in the department. These are very talented people here. Yeah, no doubt. To what extent did you also seek external inputs, either from other department chairs around the country or from other departments at MGH? Yeah, so that's a great question. I would say, you know, I don't have specific recollections of, but more just very much valuing SCARD and what SCARD represents and being able to just go compare notes with other department chairs. Of course, I'd been going to SCARD for 10 years before I came, and so had the experiences kind of coming into it. I would say also Peter Slavin, who was the president of MGH for most of my tenure here, also had a, the first several years I was here with every every new chair, he schedules sort of regular one-on-ones with the new chairs to help sort of think through things, and those were very valuable conversations. And I'll mention another gentleman who I think very highly of, who unfortunately recently passed away, is a gentleman named Jerry Austin, and he was, I often tease Jerry, he was the Grand Master of MGH. He was Chair of Surgery decades ago, and he founded the, the Mass General Physicians Organization in the early 90s and was one of the architects of the Partners Healthcare System, which became, is now Mass General Brigham. In fact, the building I'm sitting in is now called the Austin Building. His name's right below my window here. And he just passed away about five or six months ago. Committees are a fundamental administrative tool across academic medical centers and universities. And you identified at least 45 committees on which you served during your years at Yale and another 25 committees since joining MGH. What is your perspective on committee assignments do you always say yes? <laughs> yes and no. Yes, I, I did for many years always say yes. And recently now I'm finding myself asking to be relieved of some of my committee assignments just because there's only so many hours in the day. 
you know, in a collaborative leadership models, committees are the tools by which you lead collaboratively, right? Without a committees or whatever you want to call them, task forces. But I do believe strongly in the opportunity to bring groups together and bounce ideas off each other and to build consensus and often think of it in sort of an onion layers approach that both at Yale and at MGH and now at the Brigham as well, there's your the, the, your most central leadership group that you rely on. And those are, are really critical weekly meetings for each department to come together. And I see those meetings as really being where the most difficult issues in the, that are being faced in the department, I share at those meetings and very much value the input of the, of the team. How do you keep your committee work in balance with running your department and with other professional commitments? And I'm thinking not only of committee work that's occurring within your department, but committee work that contributes to the broader institution or to organizations outside of MGH. How to keep it in balance is a tough question, Jeff. Right now, I, I have two departments. Well, my, the enterprise has three departments. There's the Brigham, the Mass General, and then something we've created called the Enterprise Service Group, which is a, a department that's in service of all of our community hospitals. And then there's activities at the enterprise. There's activities for each of these hospitals. So it's a little bit of a juggling act for me at the moment. But on any given day, I, I have to kind of look through every every week to sort of prioritize what needs to take priority. And not uncommonly, there's things that are in, in conflict with each other that I can't, can't be in two places. And so I have to pick one. And sometimes that just rotates depending on, gee, I haven't been to that. <laughs> I haven't been to that hospital in a while. Let me go there and I'll, I'll go to that meeting. And then you have to decide too, which are you going to show up in person for as opposed to Zoom. And I try and keep that in mind too, that, you know, being, being visible, being present is important. As some say, showing up is half the battle, right? So it's, it's a great point, And I'm really glad you made that point because in our current era, post pandemic, there's more opportunity to participate remotely than ever before. You know, at least I, I find that, you know, some leaders opt for that remote engagement almost always. I share your interest in being in person a a good bit of time as much as possible, and it is a definite experience being in the room. Four years ago, Partners Healthcare became Mass General Brigham. Help us understand the nature of that change and the impact on practicing medicine at MGH. Yeah, thank you. I think that Partners Healthcare for many years had been really kind of a holding company and not an operating company. And more and more, I, it became it's become apparent. I, I think I'm fond of saying that part of Partners Healthcare evolving into more of an operating company was more about sort of the recognizing that there's power collectively sort of circling the wagons in the old stagecoach era, you know, and really functioning as an integrated healthcare system. And so that's really the, the impetus for the change is to really provide the best care for the patients that we serve and that are served by our health system. And to do that really means putting them at the middle and making patient care sort of the main focus. Not that it's never, I know it sounds weird not to have patient care ever not be the main focus, but I mean, putting patients in the middle of the decision-making. And so being able to provide imaging or other services close to their homes, given that our catchment area is pretty broad in, you know, at least two hours to the west and north, and then as far out as two islands in the Atlantic and then Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket and so forth. So really being able to serve this really broad geographic community, serve it well, and also leverage the economies of scale that come from functioning as, a, as an operating unit. And have the activities of the radiology departments at the Brigham and MGH integrated as a result of this new structure? 
Some, but no, not not terribly. We really so far what we've done is really integrate the governance. So I'm so at least there's a common there's a single node for decision making across the enterprise, and that's the position I hold. We are continuing to look for opportunities where we where integrating our activities and our services make sense, but there's a long way to go to to get to sort of nirvana in that respect. But for the most part, the departments are still the, the separate, but serving different needs in cer- certain areas. And so just sharing information is a really valuable thing. So I, the budget meetings I just came from all morning, and I'll continue for the rest of the week's budget week here, is that we're, this is the first time ever that we're having joint budget meetings where in radiology where for example, from 11 to 12, we had the MGH Breast Imaging Division and the Brigham Breast Imaging Division present their budgets together. And so each person, each team gets to see the other person's budget and their capital needs and what they're driving toward and so forth and really sharing best practices. And the reason that's important is that we want patients, if they move anywhere in our health system, to get the same experience, to have the same level of quality and the level of service and so forth. And as you know, I'm sure as a department chair too, there are many degrees of freedom to that goal, right? I mean, all the way down to, I, I found myself in a molecular imaging one this morning asking the question, does gallium 68 PSMA imaging, if a patient gets gallium 68 at one facility and then F18 at another facility, is that going to cause a problem? You know, is there enough difference between the two that if they're having serial exams, that could be problematic? I didn't know the answer to that. The answer I, I was told was probably okay. It's probably okay. But it also made a mental note that, gosh, if they're in a research protocol, would that be a problem? And, and so those are the, the, at the level of detail that, you know, you start worrying that that's why we kind of need to, why we need a, a common governance because to really have patients move around the cell system with three departments means all three departments have to be, be fairly coordinated, even though they're distinct departments. So. It's, you know, it's a fascinating endeavor that you are undertaking because, you know, both the Brigham and MGH represent story departments for many, many years. And I appreciate the measured approach that you're bringing to this task of harmonization. I'm curious whether in your mind you have a strategic plan as to how you would like to see the ongoing integration occurring? And do you have a future state in mind and a a path that you're trying to follow? Yes, another great question. Some of those, you know, to some degree, one of the phrases we like here a lot is, you know, we're building the plane as we're flying it kind of thing. And there's no question. I think functionally, it's easy to, to, to picture a functional goal, which I've kind of articulated, which is that patients can get their imaging or imaging image-guided therapy services anywhere in the system and have the same experience. That's the overarching goal. And if it all drives from that, and, and like in many of the things, as long as you keep that patience patient in the middle of the decision-making, that goal is unequivocal. How we get there is has various level, has varying levels of specificity depending on the domain we're talking about. And interestingly, what, we've, what we're doing in radiology has now been replicated in the other ERAP departments. The health systems liked what we had. We were the first to do this, and actually we had proposed it. So now pathology is doing the same. Emergency medicine and anesthesia are all organized as we are now. In fact, we named the third department the Enterprise Service Group. I didn't want to in some, some areas, some, sometimes in, in academia, 
using the word community can create some tension between academic and community and so forth. I, I, I think that's a bit of unnecessary sort of distinctions. And so just to avoid that, we ended up calling our, our community arm the Enterprise Service Group. And now that's become like nomenclature like lemonade here. You know, that, that's what the other departments are calling their community arms as well. And so it's something that we've kind of started that has stuck. But in answer to your question, is there a, a, a cookbook, if you will? I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, Jeff, because I don't think you asked it that specifically. But, but in the extreme, it would be a recipe book that we're trying to follow. No, there's, there's not, it's not that specific. But we do keep the, the, the prize in mind, which is that if patients can move around our system and have that same experience no matter where they go, then that's the, that's the, the, the goal. From the perspective of controllability and decision rights, how has your role as department chair changed through these transitions in corporate structure? Yeah, it's interesting. So I do feel that the scope of my responsibility obviously has increased dramatically with being chair at the Brigham, chair at the MGH, and then responsible chief, if you will, of this enterprise service group. I have deputy chairs for each of the three departments that are really, really critical, and they do a terrific job. Kathy Geese is the Deputy Chair at the Brigham, Michael G's Deputy Chair at MGH, and David Rossman is Deputy Chair at the, for the Enterprise Service Group. And I'm a little off topic. Can you repeat the question again? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. From the perspective of controllability and decision rights. Right. Thank you. How yeah. Your role. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I was I was thinking down, but in terms of managing managing down, but managing up. I would say there is some 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 change in that I had worked at a university my entire career until I came to MGH, and then I worked for a academic hospital, MGH being an academic hospital, which is a little different than working for a university, but not too different. Now I work for a health system, which is has a little bit more of a corporate feel to it, and we have 86,000 employees in our health system. So it's a big structure, and as a consequence, there are there are some layers of administrative oversight that I'm somewhat unaccustomed to, to having worked in university settings and even in an, as a single academic hospital. Can you share any of those in particular? Sure, I would say probably the the most telling are the really related to some of the HR processes that re, that are involved in growing the 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 structure. So, for example, when there's that many people in a system in these new enterprise service groups, I think the system was eager to see if we're going to do this in not just radiology but anesthesia, emergency medicine, and pathology to at least create a similar structure across them. So luckily, since we went first, we got to sort of set the standard. And most of what we've created has been replicated in these others. So for example, I picked the term deputy purely because all the other names were taken. It's not like I love the name deputy. It's just that I couldn't think of any other name. I really wanted the people that were the lead, the the leaders of each of these departments to, to stand out with a unique title. Deputy was the only we had deputy deans at Yale, and I knew deputy wasn't being used in our health system, so I picked deputy. Now all the departments, these other departments, have deputies that are doing what we're doing. So it's been helpful to at least be able to sort of set, sort of set the pace, if you will, and help go first on many of these things. As I mentioned, it's an exciting journey that you're on, and uh, look forward to hearing how the the journey progresses and bringing these two departments and the level of integration between the two institutions. I want to make a bit, a little bit of a pivot at this moment and bring up a recent editorial that was written by you and Hedy Reshek, also a, one of our guests on the podcast. And it was published in Radiology, Visioning Radiology in 2040. In that article, you state, 
that radiologists whose activities are limited to image interpretation will not only become a commodity, but eventually may become obsolete. Setting aside the therapeutic aspects of radiology, including IR and theranostics, what do you foresee might be the primary activity of radiologists if it's not image interpretation? Yeah, it's, it's really about being part of a care team and being in, an indispensable consultant and colleague in a care team. And so the example I often give or think about is, I, w- I don't want to embarrass anyone by naming names, but I have one radiologist or more, more than one that I would put in this category, but one in particular I'm speaking of at the moment. About every six months, I get a letter from the chair of surgery or the head of this person's subspecialty division within the Department of Medicine or Surgery singing this person's praises or being an indispensable member of their team. And usually it ends with, are you paying that person enough? Because, man, we do not want that person to leave. (laughs) That's the epitome of, I think, what we're driving at here is that this person is an amazing radiologist and interprets images phenomenally. But if that's the only thing this person did, I wouldn't be getting the letter. I wouldn't be getting the praise that I get. And I don't mean to, it's just one person. There's many people like this. And there's lots and lots of people that are making themselves indispensable. But there's one in particular that I'm just thinking of as I'm telling you this story. And I just don't want to embarrass this individual. Although maybe I should because it's such a nice thing, you know, I mean, to to have that kind of praise. Yeah, no, no doubt. I guess, you know, the question is, is that, you know, these special exemplary relationships that are, you know, multidimensional are fantastic to celebrate. But if the entire specialty you know, is anticipated to move away from image interpretation, presumably because it's going to be done by a computer algorithm or computer model. I, I, I just asked the question again, what is it? No, no, I, I am not to be misunderstood. I'm not saying we move away from image interpretation. I'm All saying right. we add, we add the things that make us indispensable to the care team. Sorry, I didn't, I should have clarified that, that these are still really critical. These are radiologists that do what every other radiologist does, but they have that added, that added sense of how do I make myself so valuable to this care team that they can't live without me. And it's really about being part of their multidisciplinary conferences, being available for consults, you know, reaching out, calling results, just being the person that they can, the, the go-to person for their those, that referral base. Even if it's a radiologist does it with one referrer, the, the one referrer that is most important to them, because I realize one might argue, well, how many, ra- <laughs> you know, how you, can we, if we all start doing this, uh, are there enough, is there enough relationships to go around? And the answer is, I'm sure there is, you know, I'm sure there is. Even if it's just with the, the main person that you need to serve, that you're most, most passionate about that disease process, the most in touch with or what have you. And I have a feeling most radiologists do have relationships like this, but it's really about recognizing that the, how important those will become over time. Just imagine in your own world right now, you can call and if you need help, you can do it through a phone tree in, in an automated sense. But if you can get that personalized touch, we all gravitate to the personalized touch, right? If someone who can actually answer your questions and help you, that's where we so increasingly value those those kind of relationships in our in so many domains in our personal and professional lives. And, and how do you help to encourage the development of those true value generating relationships when production work our view generation 
is the currency with which we are compensated and that the activities that you describe are currently uncompensated. And certainly, you know, one can talk about intrinsic motivation and, you know, the desire, you know, to contribute in this way. But at some point, production needs to occur as well. Where do you see us going in order to encourage a specialty that brings value as opposed to turning the crank on widgets? Yeah, it's a it's a really critical transformation that we have to we have to embrace, Jeff. And if you look at other industries or other disciplines, so many other industries do recognize the need for uh, just to pick on a completely different industry. I could pick any of them really, but whether it be the the plumbers who 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 service our plumbing needs, right? I mean, a lot of the of the I'll pick on the furnace guy because I, I, I call my furnace guy. I have trouble with our furnace up in New Hampshire, and I call that furnace guy more than I should. I don't, he doesn't bill me for the phone calls, you know, and I feel like I have a real personal relationship with him and that, you know, he's offered to come to my, uh, this is a vacation property we have to, you know, to, if I can't get up there fast enough, there's an issue. He says, I'll go, don't worry about it, you know. And I'm sure there'll be, there'll be a bill at some point, but it's the amount of time and energy he spends in that personal relationship is so valuable to me. And yet a lot of that is unbillable on his end too. And I'm sure we, we could replicate that in so many different, we all have people that we work with that help us and we help them. And it's recognizing that it's just being there for the people that we're trying to serve that isn't always on the billable side. You've been involved in a number of professional societies and have been recognized with some of their highest honors. You've also served as president of the American Rankin Ray Society, the American College of Radiology, and currently for the International Society for Strategic Studies in Radiology. Amongst the many societies within the radiology community, how do you decide where to commit your time and effort? You know, I often channel Reed Dunnick, who was fond of saying advice he gave to people kind of growing up in their professional lives was just say yes. And uh, one's career doesn't necessarily always go in a linear, pre-programmed fashion. It's really leveraging opportunities as they become available, and opportunities lead to new opportunities. And so it's a little bit of a ping-pong ball between opportunities. Now, granted, there are times when an opportunity just doesn't seem like it's a good fit, and I don't mean to imply you should say yes to something that doesn't feel right or doesn't, you, if you're just not interested in that, or you've done that, been there, and just don't want to do that again, then you have to be thoughtful. But in general, the more that one avails oneself of opportunities as they become available, the more that new opportunities will also come. And, and frankly, I think that our day jobs benefit from this. A good example is the strategic planning methods that we used at the American Rank Race Society and then at the American College of Radiology. I replicated many, many times in my day job. I, even the strategic plan for diversity, equity, and inclusion for the whole hospital, I, I was the co-chair of that initiative here back in 2016. 15, 16, and just drew upon my experiences in, the, in those societies about how do you do a strategic plan? How do you create an implementation plan to meet the goals of the strategic plan? And then to build upon that, from the American College of Radiology, we implemented a program assessment tool that we didn't invent the, in these plans, by the way. These were held, informed by consultants and I give huge credit to a guy named Paul Meyer, who was recently deceased, uh, worked for Tecker International that we had used at both organizations. And he, I think, was a very, help, very helpful in, in, to me in this domain. I realize I'm getting very specific here with you, but, but these are just some examples of how I think that our work in professional organizations can actually 
help us in our day jobs. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Do you continue to contribute to the Renkin Ray and the ACR after your year as an executive as an executive of the societies have passed? Contribute from a leadership perspective, or yeah, yeah, well, or, or you know, kind of leveraging the unique experience and perspective you have to continue to give back to the organizations. Are are opportunities made available for you to do so? Yeah, I think in in general, there's a there's sort of a two there's two sides of this coin. One is that we definitely want to pass on the opportunities to the next generation of leaders, and most societies see it that way. And so, after you've been through your your tenure as going through the leadership track, then the torch gets passed to the next generation, which is perfectly fine and appropriate. But whenever there's an opportunity to give back, I certainly am always happy to do so. And I think you have been kind to invite me to, to a couple of RLI events for the ACR to to help contribute at times. And if, when those opportunities become available, I'm always, always happy to do so. But also it's important for us to recognize that when it's time to pass the torch that we do that. Yeah, terrific, excellent point. You've been involved in several companies over the years, mostly as a member of advisory boards, but recently you joined the board of directors as secretary of Codemetrics. What does Codemetrics do and what is the nature of your board role there? Yeah, I'm sorry, I should have updated my CV. I'm no longer doing that. But for a few years, I was on that board. Okay. Codemetrics is a wholly owned company that was spun out from the MGPO, the Mass General Physicians Organization that does automated coding, leveraging AI for automated coding. And I was on the board during its early spin-out phase, but then it kind of matured into a state where it adopted a different style board. You know, the, the, the whole notion of having automated coding is an intriguing one. Having served myself in institutions where we have wondered just how effectively we are pursuing our coding. What, what do you see as the state of that technology? Are we in an era where we may be handing over the whole coding task to, to AI for radiology? Yeah, it's an interesting evolution. I think that automated coding has been pursued for a long, long time. At Yale, it was interesting. I forget the name of the company we were we were pursuing at the time, but our compliance office at Yale wouldn't allow us to do what's called code automatic code to bill without a human intervention. The argument being that if the error rate was finite, anything other than zero, which, you know, then it needed to have a human oversee it. Even though the error rate might be equivalent to the error rate of a human, the compliance posture at that time was that with even the least possibility of an error, then it needed to be reviewed by a human. Over the years, it's been interesting to see how that sort of evolved to now being much more accepting of human equivalency with error rates. And I do think that given the enormous number of bills that we generate, the exams that we perform, having automation do as much as possible is is highly desirable. And this is where I think AI has made a big difference in, in reducing that error rate and making it a very practical opportunity. Do you see parallels between AI's development in the coding domain with where you anticipate AI going with respect to image interpretation? Yes and no. I think that coding is a lot simpler than image interpretation. It was just a low-hanging fruit to be ripe for picking, so to speak. And uh, especially, especially radiology coding, it's a little more difficult when you start about you know surgical coding and so forth, where there's the degrees of freedom are much greater in a 
trying to have AI interpret an op note and generate. Now, now maybe maybe for very specific surgeries that have more, more uniform op notes. Maybe I'm just channeling the op notes I used to generate as an intern, <laughs> knowing that they were <laughs> they had a lot of verbiage in them. Whereas radiology reports, particularly structured reports, have a, I think a little bit easier present an easier opportunity for AI. Where do you foresee AI will first have its greatest widespread adoption in the radiologist's workflow? Interestingly, Jeff, I often show a slide that I put your name at the bottom of because I took it from an email you sent me <laughs> where you outline very nicely. And I give you full credit for it when I show this slide. And I even say this is from an email Jeff Rubin sent me. We were debating, discussing the domains in which AI can make a difference. And you nicely laid out about a dozen, everything. I remember the, the, the very last point you made was the disposition, meaning the, you know, what, what is the disposition of the patient when you take the imaging findings that we have detected and integrate them with the other clinical signs and lab data and so forth. And that's the very last one. The very top of the slide is all about exam triage and what is the pro, what, you know, what are the, what's the most appropriate test for this condition and then all the stuff in between from operational issues, protocoling, interpretation, segmentation, 3D rendering, you know, there's a huge range. So of those, if to answer your question, since you're asking me the questions, I might ask you instead, but which is the one, the one area where we're going to see the, the most rapid adoption, the earliest adoption, I think was the way you put it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to duck a little bit here, Jeff, by saying, you know, operational AI is some of the some of the easiest one to adopt because it's not threatening to anybody making things making the trends run trains run faster nobody wants to stop that that that's all good so to some degree i've seen the operational ai people just all rally around that and they will answer it that way well fielded <laughs> you mentioned a little bit about your family earlier on tell us a little bit about your family life today and your ability to find time to spend with them Oh, thanks. Yeah, I have four kids and two grandkids. I have one daughter got married. So my son got married a few years ago. One daughter got married last summer, and then two more are getting married this summer. So by the end of the summer, I will be done with uh, kids' weddings, at least for the time being, hopefully. And two grandkids that are really delightful. They're ages five and two. That's my son's kids and his wife. They live in Denver. I have a daughter lives in Seattle. Daughter lives in Philadelphia. And a daughter that lives here in one of the Boston suburbs, uh, Salem, Massachusetts. And, you know, with all that you're doing, it can be stressful leadership. How do you unwind and recharge? You know, we have a house on a lake in uh, New Hampshire uh, called Lake Winnipesaukee. It's a rather large lake, several towns on the lake so we can boat to. And and so we enjoy the lake both summer and winter. In the winter, uh, we were, I was just up there this weekend. This time of year, you know, we shovel the snow off the local tennis court and play pickleball, for example. Other times we might go kayaking and among the ice flows as it's starting to break up and that kind of thing. And in the summertime, it's about floating in the lake or water skiing or just enjoying lake life kind of all year round. Sounds beautiful. What advice would you give to a young physician, a young radiologist who's inspired by your journey and would like to pursue leadership? You know, I think the, the one piece of advice is to embrace new opportunities when they come along. It's kind of going back to Reed Dunnick. And know that when you, when you embrace a new opportunity, it often leads to yet another opportunity. And nothing's forever. If you really find that you've embraced something that you don't want to do, 
people understand and they'll they'll forgive you for it. But accept the new challenges as they present themselves and then you know, enjoy the journey in, in doing so. Well, Dr. Jim Brink, you have had an amazing career to date and clearly on a trajectory uh, for many important and impactful leadership developments moving forward. The blending of your engineering background with, as you put it, the emotional intelligence that your mother gave you in order to be so effective in so many leadership spheres really came through in our conversation. And I want to express great appreciation for taking the time to spend with us today on Taking the Lead. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Please join me next month when I speak with Dr. Yoshimi Anzai, Professor of Radiology at the University of Utah and Director of Value and Safety for Integrated Enterprise Imaging for the University of Utah Health. Following medical school and three years in radiology and otolaryngology residency programs in Japan, Dr. Anzai immigrated to the United States, where she also completed a full radiology residency at the University of Michigan, a fellowship in neuroradiology, and a master's degree in public health from the University of Washington. A passionate promoter of health services research, Dr. Anzai has been a leader in training academic radiologists to establish the value of radiology through comparative effectiveness research and in establishing appropriate use criteria. A past president of the Association of University Radiologists, the American Society of Head and Neck Radiology, the American Association for Women Radiologists, and soon to be president of the American Society of Neuroradiology and recent recipient of the gold medals from the RSNA and the ASHNR, Dr. Anzai has carved a unique leadership path in American radiology. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.